Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Sardis. It's great to see everyone here this morning. Ago, we begin our journey through First Peter, and we examine the Apostle Peter's description of the church's identity as chosen exiles. We looked at how we are to be set apart from this world, how we are marked by our obedience to Christ, who called us to Himself, who opened our eyes to repent and believe in Him and who reconciled to himself those who believe him through his blood shed on the cross on our behalf. And then last week, we dug into Peter's conclusions about the resulting realities of those who have been given new life. In other words, if we, by God's gracious work in our lives, have come to place our faith and trust in him and his work on the cross, then these things are now true about us. We have an eternal inheritance that is guaranteed. If we are in Christ, then our salvation is secure. Justice said that much more, po- much more poetically than I just did, but that's, that's the truth. That is the gospel. And we can find joy in the midst of today's suffering, knowing that God is the author and Lord of our circumstances. And when compared to our eternal inheritance in glory, the pressure and persecutions of this world are both temporary and worthwhile. Today we're going to close out chapter 1 by looking at four right responses to this rebirth, to this new life in Christ. And Peter's going to tell his readers, because of who you are in Christ, here's what is expected of you. As we read this passage together this morning, I want you to listen for the commands, listen for, listen for the imperatives. For those of you uh, English people in here, listen for the imperatives. The calls to action, if you will, hear from Peter to his audience. If this is who you are in Christ, now what do you do? That is today's question, the question we're going to wrestle with here in our time together this morning. So at this point, turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. And as, you, as everybody turns, as we get there, let's all stand once again this morning in honor of God's Word as we read. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13, and we're going to finish out the chapter. So going all the way through verse 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, 
but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. You may be seated. Before we dig into today's text, as we're going to go through verse by verse, let's, let's first pause for just a minute and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for today. Lord, we thank you for our time of fellowship and worship and study this morning in Sunday school. Lord, I thank you for uh, just our, our time of worship this morning, seeing what the, the children have been learning and what they uh, to hear them sing your praise. Lord, to, to be led in worship with our, by our praise team and see the, the practice and all the time and effort that they've put into leading us in worship and, and hearing uh, Justice's poem about that, that clearly laid out the gospel from beginning to end. Uh, Lord, just uh, what a, an enjoying and uh, powerful time it has been so far. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to just to, to continue that this morning, Lord, that we would stay focused and stay plugged in to, to what's going on, to what you're doing, Lord, to, to your word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation that you've given us of who you are and, and how we are to live in light of that. We thank you for what you did through Christ on the cross on our behalf. Lord, I pray this morning that these will be your words and not mine. Lord, help me to, to speak clearly and to clearly communicate what you have communicated through your word. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless our time together this morning. And it's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, right off the bat here in verse 13, as we go through this section by section, we're going to see the first response to rebirth. If we have been born again, if we have new life in Christ then Peter is going to point out our first response here is to anchor your hope in the work of Christ. Anchor your hope in the work of Christ. Look specifically here at verse 13. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, I'm going to pick on Zoe this morning. She didn't know I was going to call her out, but I'm pretty confident that she's, she's going to be all over this. Here at the very beginning of verse 13, what's the first question that should immediately pop in your mind? That's right. What is the therefore, therefore? Well, she's heard me say that a few times. So that's, uh, that's, that's awesome. That's, that's good to know. So the word therefore is a literary device. And we know anytime that you see that word, that should be the first question that pops in your mind. Anytime you're reading through the Bible and you see the word therefore, you should pause and ask yourself that honest question. What is the therefore, therefore? We know anytime we see this word or this phrase that the author is letting the reader know that what he is about to say, what is following, is based on what came before that, is based on the truth of what he has just previously said. There's a, a series of imperatives here. The, the calls to action that follow in this passage should be what we as Christ followers are striving to do because of who Peter just explained we are in Christ. Because of what God did for you, because you have been reborn, this is how you are to now act. We've discussed previously how when we trust in Christ and repent of our sin, we are justified before God, meaning our debt of sin has been paid and we are made right with God. But we also know that we don't become perfect overnight. After our initial conversion, what follows is a lifelong process of becoming more and more Christ-like, being molded into the image of God, putting off sin and putting on 
His righteousness. And this process of spiritual growth, the fancy word for that is sanctification. Sanctification. Now we often fall into the trap of thinking that sanctification is a passive process. That once I'm saved, I'm good to go. And now I can just go through the motions of church, go through the motions of Christianity, kick back and relax until God magically grows me spiritually. And when we do that, we find that 20 years later, we're not any more spiritually mature than we were that first day. That's not how it works. That's not how it happens. Peter points out here that that's not the case. We have an active role to play in our spiritual growth. Look at what he says here. Look at what Peter says here in verse 13. He says the phrase, preparing your minds for action. Now that phrase is literally translated, if you translate it from Greek literally into English, it is, gird up the loins of your mind. Now we would look at that and go, what in the world is Peter trying to say? That's why the English translation translates it, prepare your minds for action. But if you put it back in the original context, the original context this figure of speech referred to the typical dress of the day. People wore long robes, and that's great for full coverage and all that kind of stuff. But if a person needed to run or to work, or if a soldier was getting ready to go into battle, they would roll up their robe above their knees, and they would fasten it with a belt around their waist. And this action, getting ready to to do something, getting ready to act, was called or was referred to as girding up the loins. It was preparing for action, physically preparing for action, getting ready to do something. Here in the South, it would sound more like roll up your britches. That's just if we're going to contextualize it a little bit. If you see me roll up my britches legs, you better get ready because it's getting serious. One of the youth actually told me that just the other day. We were playing volleyball. If Peter were writing to us today in the, American, in the American South, he would say something like, roll up the britches of your mind. And we would all understand exactly what he was talking about. All right? Or as my teachers used to say when I was in school, sit down, straighten up, and pay attention. Get your mind ready for action. Prepare yourself for spiritual warfare, for doing battle with the propaganda of Satan and the world. And he follows that by saying, be sober-minded. Being sober-minded means to be able to think clearly. It's the opposite of being intoxicated. Being intoxicated is to have your senses dulled, to have your thoughts be foggy, to hamper your decision-making. It means here not being addicted to or having our minds controlled by the thoughts and desires of the world. Not being distracted by the things of the world. If your desire is for the things of the world, if your desire is for the passions of this life, if there's the presence of idolatry in your life, then you will not be able to think clearly about the things of God. This phrase is used elsewhere in the New Testament as well. For example, in Mark chapter 5, verse 15, Jesus heals a demoniac, someone who obviously was clearly not able to think or respond clearly. And look at how he's described. Mark 5, 15, And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Same phrase. Jesus healed the demoniac, and then he was described as being in his right mind. He was sober-minded. Or look at Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. He's reminding them in this letter how to live in light of the approaching return of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 5-10, through 10, 
for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober or sober-minded. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Paul, Paul's call here is to be sober-minded, knowing the day of the Lord is approaching. And this is similar to what Peter says here in verse 13 as well. Peter tells the Christ followers he's writing to, to set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, notice the verb tense here in verse 13. The grace that will be brought. This fulfillment is in the future. But he doesn't say can be or may be or should be. He says will be. And that's important. He's referring back, again, what is the therefore, therefore? He's referring back to what we talked about last week, to the previous paragraph. If we are in Christ, then our salvation is secure. And we will inherit that grace at the end of our lives and we will realize the fullness of of this salvation at the end of time. And even though that is a future event still for us, it is a sure bet. It will happen. It's guaranteed. And that, Peter says, is the anchor of our hope. That's where we place our hope. We struggle with this in this life because hope in this world when we use hope as referring to anything in this world it's merely describing a possibility i can hope something will happen in my life but that is always clouded by the possibility that it might not for example i hope the razorbacks would make the final four and they made a good run but each game was intense because that hope was not secure There was always the possibility that they could fall short and not make it. And ultimately they did. That's exactly what happened. Surprise, surprise. Peter here is telling telling these Christ followers to set their hope on the reality of our future inheritance because the grace of God is a hope unlike any other hope. The grace of God, this hope that we have in Christ, brings joy and peace in the here and now because it's guaranteed. There's no need to watch the games on pins and needles wondering if God's grace is really going to be mine at the end because as someone who could testify to the saving work of God in my life, I know how it ends already. And that salvation is as good as done. But how, how do we do that? That's the question. How do we live in a world that has no hope? A world that hates the light? A world that persecutes those who takes a stand For righteousness, a world that is full of death and disease and disaster and war, how do we keep our eyes fixed on Christ in the midst of the storm? Peter should know. So what does he say? He says, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Roll up your britches legs, sit down, straighten up, pay attention to the Word of God. Get ready, prepare for what's coming. It doesn't just happen. We don't just sit back and bemoan our circumstances and pray that God changes it. We have to fight. We have to work. Look at how Paul describes this in Philippians 2.12. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
He's not saying here, work to save yourself. He's saying, rather, that following Christ takes work and effort. Read and learn your Bible. Surround yourself with other believers. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in worship so that you can keep your eye on the ball. So that you can respond to the world in a way that brings glory to God and sets you apart as His. In fact, this is basically what Pastor Mark's Sunday School classes in Christian ethics is all about, by the way. There's a free plug for that. And this leads us straight into the second imperative, the second response of those who are in Christ, is to be different, to dare to be different. Continuing on in in 1 Peter 1, looking at verses 14 and 16, look at what Peter says. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy... So you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We've seen in each of the last two weeks the interconnectedness of faith and obedience. Those two go hand in hand. There are a lot of people out there who are different, okay? Let's just be honest. There's a lot of people who are different. We're not called to be different for different sake. In fact, being different is not always a good thing. Obedience to the call and command of Christ is what, is what sets us apart from the world. That should be what makes us different. Obedience neither saves nor grants faith, but obedience is a direct result of genuine faith always. Christ's followers here are described as obedient children. We're children because, remember, we have been adopted into the family of God through faith in the blood of Jesus shed for us. It's also interesting to note here that obedience is not commanded anywhere in this chapter. It is assumed of God's people. In a list of commands here, a list of imperatives, obedience is just assumed. If you are a Christ follower, then he describes you as an obedient child. In verse 2, set apart for obedience. this, This idea is just assumed. Because that's what you're supposed to be. That is who you are supposed to be as obedient children. Therefore, do not be conformed to your former self. If we are in Christ, we have been reborn, so do not return to your old way of life. We see a lot of parallel here between Peter and Paul, and we see the same thing here. Many of you, if you're familiar with Romans chapter 12, probably picked up on some of this as we're reading through 1 Peter. Because in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, the call is not to be conformed to the world. Do not be like the world. If you can comfortably walk around in a crowd of lost people and blend right in, there is a problem. If your goals and ambitions look just like your lost friends and neighbors' goals and ambitions, there is a problem. And how are we to do this? How are we to be set apart from the world according to Paul here? By the renewal of your mind. Does that sound familiar? That's the same thing that Peter is saying in 1 Peter 1. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Renew your mind. Our society wants to emphasize heart over mind. 
Feelings over critical thinking. And this is a lie straight from the deceiver himself. Emotions are fickle, and your heart will happily lead you straight to hell if you let it. Rather, the mind is the key to the heart. What you feel should always be filtered through what you know to be true about God and His Word. Furthermore, this word holy here refers to God's otherness. That's a big fancy made-up word for the day. God's otherness. The fact that He is different or set apart from every created thing. And as He is holy, so we as His children should be holy. And this is nothing new here. This is not a New Testament idea because Peter is quoting actually from the Old Testament law. You go all the way back to the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, in the law, the list of clean and unclean, God tells the people of Israel, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Now this section of the law is listing all the animals that were considered impure and would make the Israelites impure before God. The idea here is in the law that the law was to set Israel apart as God's people. The emphasis here on purity within the law was to set Israel apart from other nations, yes, but also to show Israel that God was holy. God was pure and as If you were impure, you could not stand in the presence of God. And a cursory study of the Old Testament will reveal that the law served also to show the people that they could never be pure of their own effort. They could never keep the law perfectly. They could not keep the law on their own. They needed a heart change. Even in the Old Testament, God's people were expected to pursue holiness, though, because God was holy. That was the expectation. We will never be perfect, as they were never perfect, but we are to be molded into the image of Christ. We should look more like Him every day. We should look more like Him today than we did yesterday. Again, this is is a command here. Because God is different from the sinful world. His followers are to be different, and that difference is in their obedience to Him. Too often, we want the reality of rebirth, like we saw last week, without the pursuit of holiness. We want to skip this section. Too many of us are content to go through the motions at church and then work all week long to blend into the world. This cannot be. You see, our actions reflect the identity of our Master. And we cannot be both Christ's and the world's. Which leads us to the third response. If we are in Christ, then remember whose you are. Not remember who you are, remember whose you are. Look at verse 17 through verse 21. If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Look here specifically at verse 17. If you call on Him as Father, meaning if you are a child of God, 
If you have been saved by God to inherit grace at His return, as He's been talking about, if you've turned from your sin and trusted in Him, if you are a Christ follower, then here is the imperative. Conduct yourself with fear. That's an imperative statement. That's what you as a Christ follower, if you are a Christ follower, this is what you are to do. Conduct yourself with fear. Similar, again, to the words of Paul we looked at earlier in his letter to the church at Philippi. He talks about working out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. So what, is it, but what, what does this mean? What does it mean, conduct yourself with fear? We typically fear things in this world because they are unpredictable. True? We fear things that are unpredictable because we don't know. We don't understand. God is not so. God is not unpredictable. In fact, Peter says here that he judges impartially. He is perfectly just, so why are we afraid? Because he judges impartially, because he's perfectly just. A Christ follower's fear of the Lord, though, is not one of unpredictability or irrationality, but one of reverence and awe. For example, I I had a healthy fear of my father growing up, not because I was afraid of what he might do to me, or because I I didn't know what was expected of me, or anything like that. But it was one of respect. It was a fear of his displeasure or disappointment. I wanted to reflect well on him and have a good relationship with him. And there was also this understanding that disobedience would be met with fair yet painful consequences. That That was part of it. My relationship with my father, though, then affected my decisions and my actions growing up. I did what I did. I made the decisions that I made. I went where I went, hung out with who I hung out with, said what I said, all in the back of my mind with knowing what my father would or would not approve of. What I had been taught. Now, that does not mean I always did right, as my sisters would very quickly point out to anyone. But it was always in my mind. It was always a factor, whether I chose to listen to it or not. The author of Proverbs tells his son in Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Again, we see the fear of the Lord tied to wisdom and knowledge. Being sober-minded. It's a theme throughout the Bible. This reverential fear should mark our lives throughout our time on this earth, knowing that this is not, this is not our home. We are exiles, and this life here is temporary. It's, we are living in the previews before the feature film, if you will. And we have this fear. We have this reverence because we remember that we were dead in our sins, as Justice told us earlier, enslaved to the feudal inheritance of our sinful nature. And just like a slave cannot free himself, neither could we. But we were ransomed by Christ on the cross. Not with silver or gold, not with the most precious or valuable thing that we could think of that exists on this planet, but with something far more valuable, the lifeblood of the perfect Son of God Himself. Again, we see the foreknowledge of God here. Not that He looked down through the annals of time and saw what Christ would do, but that this was always his plan from the, begin- from the very beginning. Before Adam and Eve even sinned, God had already made plans for their redemption. And that was always and only through, the, through using Rome to nail his innocent son to that cross for you and for me. And it's through Christ that we have faith in God who raised Christ from the dead. 
and who seated him in heaven at his right hand where he intercedes for us today. Granting us access to God, providing the evidence of the security of our faith and the foundation of our hope in the here and now. We have seen where our hope is to be placed and how we are to relate to the world and how we are to relate to God here by remembering who it is, who it is that purchased our freedom from sin, who it is that we serve. And that leads us to our fourth and final response. Because of what Christ has done for us, we are to love one another. We're to love one another. Peter addresses where we are to place our hope, how we relate to the world, how we relate to God, and then how we relate to each other as well. Love one another. Finish out the chapter in verses 22 through 25. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. Hear the imperative there? It's a command. You love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Again here we see the inseparability of obedience with sanctification. They go hand in hand. Here we see a picture of the circle of sanctification, if you will. God purifies us, so we respond with obedience. God makes our obedience possible. Our obedience helps purify us, makes us more Christ-like, which leads to greater obedience, etc., etc., and so on and so forth. It's a continual process throughout our lives. We're never perfect. We never get to the point where we have obeyed enough, where we are perfect enough. But holiness and purity are at the same time a work of God and a fruit of our obedience to His Word. Holiness and purity are at the same time a work of God and the fruit of our obedience. Look at the command here in verse 22. I pointed it out as we read. Love one another. Because you have been born again, because you have been given new life, Because He first loved you, you are to love one another. If God loved us and we are to be Christ-like, then we are to love others, our brothers and sisters in Christ, the way He has loved us. You've been purchased not with things that that will perish, not to an inheritance that's in question or in jeopardy, but by the blood of Jesus to an incorruptible, undefiled, eternally secure inheritance, already secured and waiting for you at the return of Christ. And here, in this section, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. So we're going to turn there real quick. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. Prophet Isaiah says, A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? And here's the message. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. People come and people go. Circumstances change. Our time here is temporary, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen? What what comfort is found here? What sureness of hope is found here? In his commentary on the book of 1 Peter, R.C. Sproul ends this section with a poem. 
He says, hammer away, ye hostile hands. Your hammers break, God's anvil stands. And this word, the word that stands forever, is the good news that was preached to you. That's the gospel that Justice just laid out for us here just a few minutes ago. That's the good news that was preached to you. This word of God is the source of rebirth, the source of new life. The word of God is what affects our heart change. And it is the word of God that drives us to holiness, as we've seen. And it's the same word of God that replaces our selfishness and our pridefulness and replaces it with a generous and earnest love for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Not a tolerance of, not an acceptance of, not just the formality of being in the same room and being cordial to one another, but a genuine love for one another. This is why the Apostle John can say in 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. It doesn't get any more black and white than that. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Love for one another is a right response to genuine conversion. If there is no love for the brethren, then there is no love for God. There is no proof of new life. You have no claim of, to be a child of God. Hate comes naturally. Disdain and distance comes naturally. But love that unites different people under the banner of Christ springs from a supernatural heart change. Is there evidence in your life of such a change? That's, you see, that's the question. Are there evidence in your life of a heart change that's producing these effects, these results? I heard a pastor point out this week that every good sermon is a one-point sermon. So here's your one point for today. If you get nothing else, here's your one point for today. Christ followers are called to be set apart from the world. We're called to be different because of our obedience to Christ. We're called to be holy as He is holy. Y'all know I'm a, I'm a history nerd, as my Sunday school class found out this morning. And this week I was reminded of a story that I had heard, a paper I had read more than once years ago, I came across it again this week just randomly. Not randomly, God brought it to my attention. And as I thought about it again, it truly broke my heart for so many who claim the name of Christ today, for, for the church today. The year is 155 AD, so 150-ish years after the death of Christ. The church is young, and Rome is persecuting the church. There's, there's official state-sanctioned persecution going on. And a man named Justin Martyr penned what was known as the first apology. It was a written defense of Christianity delivered and addressed to the Roman emperor. Rome was actively persecuting Christians, actively trying to shut down churches at this point in time. And Justin sought to defend Christianity against the false claims that were coming against it. People were accusing Christians of all kinds of things, of believing all kinds of things. And so he writes this letter, an apology. Apology is a Greek word that means defense. He, he writes this and sends it to the Roman emperor to explain, no, this is what we believe. He's not making excuses. He's not seeking peace terms. He's saying, if you're going to persecute us, at least know why. 
This is what we actually believe. He wanted to show the emperor that Christianity was not this radical sect that was stirring up rebellion against the Roman Empire. In fact, he advocated that it should be embraced by the Roman Empire, that there were benefits to Rome of Christianity. If you like to read it, it's public record. It's easy to find online. It's a great defense of the gospel and a summary of what we believe. If you want to check it out, again, I would Google it. It's pretty easy to find. However, what, what stuck out to me as I was going through was the evidence he used for his defense. He explained the teachings of the Bible. He listed them out. This is what we believe about these areas. But here's what jumped out to me. Here's what broke my heart. He repeatedly called for the emperor. If you want an example, if you don't understand, look at the lives of Christians. He repeatedly called for the emperor to look at the lives of Christ followers. Look at the members of these churches. Look at the people who are following Christ as proof of what the Bible teaches. If you want to know what the Bible teaches, look at the Christians. Look at how they're living. Look at their lives and that will be proof enough. It broke my heart to think about making that claim about the church today in America. If someone asked you what it meant to follow Christ, could you tell them, just look at the the people who claim to be Christians. Look at their lives. That's, That's what it means to follow Christ. Could we make that same claim today? No. No. Our society is filled with people who want to claim an inheritance but want nothing to do with the family name. What has gone wrong? What has changed? It's, this, it's the pursuit of holiness. Our lives don't match what we claim to believe. It didn't make the persecution go away. But people knew who the Christians were. People knew what they believed. If we are in Christ, we have been born again to new life. The old person is dead. We've been made new. If that is true of you, then we are called to live holy lives set apart from this world. As visibly different from this world as light is from darkness. As Michelle and the praise team come up to lead us in worship again this morning, I want want you to reflect on that for a minute. Could someone, honestly ask yourself this question, could someone point to your life as an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus? Could they they do that? Could someone point to your life and say, you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus? Just look look at justice. Do what he's doing. Could they say that about you? Are you actively seeking to be holy, to be set apart in this life? Or are you seeking to blend in to the world? As we close in prayer, I want to leave you with this question. Are you any different? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for today. Lord, We thank you for your word. We thank you for the hard truths of your word. Lord, we thank you for the fact that your your word doesn't 
sugarcoat the truth, that it calls us to holiness, that it calls us to do what you have commanded us to do. Well, I pray for, I, I, I thank you for the grace and the mercy that you've shown just in the fact that we're able to be here and be reminded of this this morning. Lord, for your patience with us, as each one of us, I know I'm preaching to myself here as much as I am to anybody else. How often we need to be reminded to pursue holiness in this life, above all else. Not to just incorporate it a little bit into our lives where it's easy, but as the foundation of our lives. That we would be driven, not just because we want to be different, but because we want to follow you, and that will will inevitably make us different. Lord, help us to not be afraid to be different. Help us not to worry about what other people are going to think or what it's going to cost. Lord, it will cost. It'll cost friends. It'll cost relationships. It'll cost, it might cost jobs or promotions or whatever the case may be. Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, to follow you wherever you lead, to be molded into your image so that we can serve you as citizens of your kingdom temporarily in a foreign land, knowing that we have an inheritance that is set and secure and an eternal home that's waiting to be revealed. Lord, we love you. Lord, we praise you and we thank you again for the opportunity, for the freedom we have to come and dig into your word together. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.